This message first aired on the radio on August 1st, 2003. We're preaching for an hour today about uh, the, the dispensation of promise, and we have God's Word, and that's all we need. We have the radio station here, by the grace of God, and we have His Word, and we have a preacher, and I hope we have you to listen uh, it's a, a wonderful opportunity in the middle of every day, at least for me, to look at God's Word and to study it and to deliver it, and I hope it's also a blessing for you to receive it. We're taking up uh, the dispensation of promise, and uh, any time we take up dispensations, we have uh, first the the question of what is a dispensation, and then we have... Uh, to deal with the actual significance at the present time of the writing of the Scriptures. And then we have what we come to call the dispensational significance of the writings, or what these writings uh, in the Scripture, uh, as God edited the Bible into about a thousand pages of English language, well, he he uh, edited all all of history into what, however many pages it is in Hebrew and Greek, and it's delivered to us translated, into a mere 1,000 pages of the English Bible, and we have these 33,000-plus verses. We have these 1,100 chapters. Uh, it's really not all that much uh, uh, material, but the way that the material is a wheel in a wheel, the way that the material speaks forward and backwards, uh, occupies uh, our total being, really com- completely occupies our thoughts, and there are so many different ways we can we can take when we look at the scriptures. For example, we just completed, and we won't take it up again today. We completed the wonderful section on the uh, sacrifice of Isaac, or when God tested Abraham by asking him to uh, take his only begotten son and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And we saw how that spoke forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, how it spoke backward to the promise that God gave uh, to Adam and Eve. We saw all the tip, what we call the typical significance, and we see the dispensational significance. When we talk about dispensational significance, what we mean by that is how God has ordered time. You remember that as we introduced this subject, we discussed that God not only created the heavens and the earth, and that he did, that's an elementary truth. If if you don't acknowledge uh, that God is the creator, if you don't if you will not acknowledge what you see from the creation that God is creator, you don't see his divine power, his godness or his godhead. If you won't I say if you don't see, if you won't admit that you see that, we really can't have a conversation because the Bible tells me that that is obvious to every person who ever lived. And when you tell me you don't believe in God or that God created or anything like that, you're not being honest, and we can't really have a a conversation about that. We, well, we can't have a conversation about much. We certainly can't have much of a conversation about God when you won't even acknowledge Him. That being said, we don't need to prove that God created the heavens and the earth, and we don't need to prove how old they are or anything like that. But what we do need to go on and examine is how God pieced together and put together uh, history, because the Lord Jesus Christ is also the one around whom God framed the ages. And so when we look at uh, uh, something like the book of Genesis, when, we, when we're when we taking into consideration the whole 
uh, dispensation of promise, which occupies us with the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we look at that whole thing, we have to step forward and look at the details. We have to step back a little bit and examine, now, what is the typical, or we might say dispensational, significance? And today I want to take up the dispensational significance, uh, delving back to pick up the, the, the sacrifice of Isaac, uh, and then we see the uh, death of Sarah, and then we see a bride for Isaac as he marries Rebekah, and then we see uh, Abraham uh, marrying Keturah in, in Genesis chapter 25. And in all those matters, we see what, what I'm going to call dispensational significance, what we might say typical significance, because we realize that the, we realize that the Bible unfolds out of itself it, uh, it, it is, uh, I say, a wheel within a wheel. I take a biblical allusion for that out of the book of Ezekiel. It is an unfolding, uh, self-unfolding, uh, billowing cloud up out of itself. It, uh, the, the Word of God telescopes out of itself. And it is the most amazing book. We know that it is inspired by God just by that, signific- by that significant fact. And that's why yesterday we said we've got to get early things right because out of the Scripture comes the Scripture. And just as God has put together, and He's the only one, as He has designed time in a fabric that, uh, so that the things that are seen are made up out of the things which are not seen, uh, he, just as He has pieced together this fabric we call time, and as He has coordinated all events in perfect precision around our Lord Jesus Christ, so he has put together the Word of God with the same characteristic, his Godness, we might say, his ever-presence, his divine oversight, his presiding mind, evident in the finest detail and evident in the largest consideration. So, so God has set eternity into our hearts, and he is the one who's eternal. God answers the thirst that we have uh, to enjoy uh, the, the, his word with his word. And uh, now, as we look at these uh, movements of, through the life of, of Abraham, we want to put it together with the, f- with the typical movements that occur in the future. And so we see the death of Isaac, and of course that corresponds, uh, the death of Isaac certainly corresponds to the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we have in Genesis chapter 22, typically. So we have the, the, the sacrifice of Isaac. Of course, Isaac wasn't truly sacrificed, but we have the typical significance of it. And then we even have the principle of substitution, and so we realize why it is that Isaac did not need to die, because God provided a lamb in his place. And what a wonderful thought that has been for us, over the last couple of days. And then we saw in Genesis twenty-two nineteen that even though Abraham took two young men with him part of the way up and then said, we'll leave you here and the donkey, and we will come back to you, that the Scripture says in, in Genesis twenty-two nineteen, so Abraham returned unto his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba, and we don't see anything about Isaac. And 
of course, we are going to see Isaac again, but we don't see Isaac again in the Scripture until after the death of Sarah and after uh, uh, the the um, bride for Isaac is obtained by the eldest servant of Abraham. And we're going to go into that today and look at that, uh, also that wonderful uh, passage of Scripture, which occupies the 24th chapter of uh, Genesis. Then we see Isaac again. Uh, we see Isaac uh, when we see Rebekah coming to him. And uh, we're going to talk about the bride of Isaac, and we're going to take up that controversial subject of who is the bride of Christ. We're going to touch on that a little bit. And then we see, and I say controversial because I think I'm a little controversial in that, uh, and then finally uh, we have uh, Abraham uh, marrying again uh, after uh, uh, the death of Sarah, after we read about the bride for Isaac, and then Abraham takes another wife whose name is Keturah, and uh, she bears him really many nations. It's how he becomes the the uh, father of many nations. It's one of the ways. And so now we also see uh, something of the Gentiles, uh, that God has a plan also for the Gentiles, something besides merely uh, the promise through Isaac. And that's also a wonderful consideration. So if we can get it in today, that's where we're headed. If we can't get it in today, we're still headed that way. We still want to get all of that in, and uh, we'll see how it goes. With our consideration now uh, that that Abraham uh, has, has, has followed the Lord's word, and he did not withhold his only begotten Son from God. And, of course, we know from James chapter 2, that is when he was justified for the second time or when he was justified by works. Uh, he, he, comes, uh, he comes back down. We don't see Isaac, but we see uh, the following scriptures, beginning with Genesis chapter 22, and verse 20, and it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah, she has also borne children unto thy brother Nahor. So now here's the, here's the uh, Nahor, uh, uh, brother to Abraham, and uh, Milcah bears children to him, uh, Huz his firstborn, and Buzz his brother, and uh, that may be, maybe they're twins, maybe not. Uh, but Huz and Buzz, so there you're looking for a couple of names to name your sons. You can name them Huz and Buzz, and uh, then you have the good Bible names. Uh, you know, uh, certainly uh, people won't wonder which Huz or which Buzz. And Kemuel, the father of Aram, and Chesed, and Hazo, and Pildash, and Jidlaf, and Bethuel. So there we have uh, the uh, those those sons. And then we have this remarkable statement here, And Bethuel begat Rebekah, these eight Milcah did bear to Nahor, Abraham's brother. And so we have set out here, and it's an unusual thing, we really have three unusual things that we're going to start looking at here. Three, three very unusual things, and they, they speak to us. Uh, first, 
that a woman is named specifically and specially in this very short genealogy, uh, Bethuel. We don't just see his sons. We see now uh, to Bethuel, uh, Rebekah is born. And uh, and so she's, she's uh, named here. And that's an unusual thing that she would even be named, but she is named. And then we have... Uh, Genesis chapter 23, something else unusual, verse 1, And Sarah was a hundred and seven and twenty years old. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kerjath Arba, uh, the same is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham, Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now what's unusual here is that we are told exactly how old Sarah is. Sarah was 127 years old, uh, and uh, these were all the years of the life of Sarah. Have you ever wondered why it is in our culture? Uh, and I, th- I think it's in, well, I know it's in some other cultures, and it may this may be universally the case, that women do not like to have, uh, at least adult women, do not like to have their ages given. Well, this is the only woman in the Bible, as far as I can tell, whose age is actually numbered. This is Sarah. So we have this unusual thing. And when unusual things are, are occur in the Bible, they don't occur casually. They're not editor's mistakes. They're not... Uh, uh, when unusual things occur in my writing, such as typographical errors or the wrong word or a misconstructed sentence or something like that or something out of context... Just forget about it. I didn't. I didn't know what I was doing. I made a mistake writing. It doesn't. You just have to look past that. When something unusual occurs in the Word of God, well, I just say my writing, newspaper, any other writing that you read. But you have to bring a different mind to the reading of the Scripture and to the hearing of the Scripture, because when something catches your attention as being unusual, God has placed it there unusually to get your attention. One of the things we we like to say when we do an outline of the entire Scripture is we like to leave you with the, uh, we hope we leave you with an outline of Scripture that's been given to us, and and we, we hope that you will learn to enjoy the Scriptures with that, because the Scriptures are a very enjoyable thing. Uh, that is the most enjoyable thing, better than food, better than anything you can think of, better than Husker football, uh, 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 certainly better than a 7-7 seven and seven season, but uh, even better uh, than a Husker national championship is uh, the enjoyment of, of God's Word. And, and you, you have to approach God's Word as God's Word to enjoy God's Word. Now, here we find these unusual things, and we say, why is that there? This certainly picks my attention. I, I'm uh, uh, taken with this, and I need to think about it. And then we learn to meditate in God's Word. And we, we notice with interest, uh, this is unusual. I wonder what that could mean. It gets my attention. And now let me, let me now chew on that or meditate on that. Meditation is not the mindless repetition of nonsense. That is heathen, demonic stuff. Uh, meditation is to chew the cud. Only only uh, if you have a divided hoof, then only a clean animal among those with divided hoof, chew, hooves chew the cud. 
Uh, it is the word to masticate. It is the same word to ruminate. It is the word for meditate. This is how we meditate. We think about it. And let these things turn over in our minds. And as we have an outline of Scripture, of course, we see that this is a dispensational whole or a significant area that has these two events. And the third event that is very unusual is we find in Genesis 23, this is the only piece of property that Abraham ever owns. Abraham's going to buy a piece of property in this chapter. He's given a task of walking through a land that's promised to him. He never owns any of it, and yet here, to bury Sarah, we see that Abraham is going to buy a piece of property from the sons of Heth, and that's the only thing he ever owns, and it's very, it also gets our attention as something unusual. So we put these three things together as something unusual, and they're on the, shall we say, right-hand side of the typical death of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the sacrifice of Isaac, which uh, for which he was substituted. And then we see after this, here comes a bride for Isaac. Our attention dispensationally is had, and we should say, my goodness, what does all this mean to me? And we'll look at that just after this break. Now, when we see the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, with the knowledge of the New Testament Scriptures, this is the only way to enjoy them. When we see the New Testament Scriptures with the Old Testament Scriptures, this is the way we can deeply enjoy them. And I want to tell you that if you want to really enjoy the Old Testament Scriptures, you must have a thorough, a reasonably thoroughgoing knowledge of the New Testament. It just is essential. Now, I won't say that you need a thoroughgoing knowledge of the Old Testament to understand the New Testament, but I will say this. There's different kinds of food in the Bible. There's milk, there's meat, and there's strong meat. There are those three things. If you want to have milk, and milk is pre-digested food, it is food that is digested by somebody else, uh, pre-digested, partially digested by somebody else, and then given to somebody whose digestive system is not fully developed. My little grandbabies are all nursed, and I'm glad to see that, and I wouldn't change their diet early on, but you remember that Abraham rejoiced when Isaac was weaned. He didn't rejoice while he was being breastfed. And that's a picture for us, if you care to understand it, that God certainly provides the milk of the Word and that is essential for every believer, just like for every child, to begin his diet on the milk of the Word. And that's why God places in the body of Christ, in the local church, he places someone capable of digesting and giving out pre-digested food. And those of us that do that work are very happy to do it, obedient to do it, expect nothing from it if we're servants of the Lord. On the other hand, God the Father will rejoice when you're weaned from the milk and able to have a sandwich once in a while. Now, most believers that I know cannot go into the Bible and get themselves a sandwich. Now, everybody I know can go into their refrigerator and get themselves a sandwich. Not only can they do it in their own house, they can do it in anybody's house. But today, it's a sad thing 
that most Christians cannot go into the Bible and get themselves a sandwich to enjoy. Now, beyond that, there's strong meat in the Scripture. And I'm going to tell you this. If you want the strong meat of Scripture, which is excellent, this is like a 24-ounce, medium-done New York strip or Omaha strip. Or if you're in another culture, it's like a full plate of nyamachoma, for example, in East Africa. If you want to have that roasted meat and sit with the men and enjoy it, a little pile of salt in front of you, you have got to understand the Old Testament because strong meat in the New Testament comes from that. Now, what's the purpose of BibleStudy.net in that context? Our purpose is to try to help you at least go get a sandwich. If not, sit down with you and have some nyamachoma. Well, nyamachoma, Swahili for roasted meat. So that being said, now let's come back here and look at the dispensational significance of these events. These three things, the reference to Rebecca in the genealogy, which is unusual. It's not unheard of, but it's unusual. The numbering of Sarah's years, that is not only unusual, but as I see the Bible, it is the only place where a woman's age is given. And... uh Thirdly, then, the fact that Abraham never owned any land. He was a stranger and a pilgrim, and yet he buys, in Genesis 23, land from the Hittites, that are the sons of Heth. Now, not only does he buy the land here, but in that land is the cave of Machpelah, and if you'd listened to previous broadcasts, for example, or you've, you've, maybe you've seen this other places, it is available to be seen. It's a wonderful discovery in the Scripture and was just shown to me. But the cave of Machpelah, when we took up the parable of the treasure hid in the field, we realized that those buried in that cave, Isaac, Sarah, Rebecca, Abraham, and Lee, spell out the word Israel, who is the, who Jacob being the sixth, put in there. Now, that being said, we now want to put this all together into dispensational significance. Because we have nothing that immediately answers to it in the Old Testament, I immediately become provoked. Well, this is something hidden. This is something that, that's just not revealed in here in this Old Testament. Therefore, I attach it to the dispensation that we are presently in, friends, the dispensation that we're presently in, which is one that was not made known heretofore to any of the prophets, but at the time of its revelation to the Apostle Paul and others, was made known during the New Testament time to the New Testament prophets, what we call New Testament prophets, and the Apostle Paul. This is the great mystery or secret that was hidden in time, the secret which is the body of Christ, or the church which is his body. That's why I think we have this unusual period of time here, or these unusual references in a period of time between the the typical crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ and the typical marriage of the Lord Jesus Christ to his prepared bride. Now, I've given the overview out. Before we go through the details, let's just look a little bit at Genesis chapter 23 
and we've read about the death of Sarah, and we read that Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And I want to say this is earnest mourning, the death of a spouse, this tragedy to Abraham, the death of a mother, this tragedy to Isaac. They now go forth weeping, and uh, it is only God who can take the tragedy of death and turn it into a blessing. It is not that Sarah is no more. It is that Sarah died. And Abraham now says this. Abraham says in verse 3, Abraham stood up from before his dead, that is, uh, from before the dead body of Sarah, and spoke unto the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. This now is the stranger and pilgrim. I am a stranger and sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And uh, just a couple of comments. First of all, it should go without saying, but unhappily it doesn't go without saying, so I have to say it, that we bury our dead out of our sight. I use this as an opportunity to talk about Christian baptism, the form of which goes under controversy because there are those who claim that Christian baptism, forget for a moment the fact that some would do it with infants, some would say that the proper form of Christian baptism includes not only immersion but also pouring or sprinkling. Well, it's a picture of burying, and what we do with our dead is we, here as Abraham says, we bury them out of my sight. You wouldn't sprinkle a little bit of dirt on a dead body and say you buried it. You wouldn't pour a little bit of dirt on a dead body and say you buried it. You cover it up with dirt, you've buried it. Now, we don't, with baptism being not burial, but a picture of burial with Christ and resurrection with Christ, that's why the element is water for other reasons as well, but the element's water because we can put somebody under and get them up. They're not dead. A symbol is a symbol when it symbolizes the thing it symbolizes. So here you see Abraham says, bury my dead out of my sight. You're right. It's not the context here. I just took occasion. And the children of Heth answered Abraham, saying unto him, Hear us, my Lord, thou art a mighty prince among us, and the choice of our sepulchres bury thy dead. None of us shall withhold from thee his sepulchre, but that thou mayest bury thy dead. Now, I'm not going to go through this whole detail here as they go through a typical Eastern negotiation session, but I want to point out to you something here. Abraham has been promised this land. He's walking through the land that he was promised by God. Whose land is it? It's God's land. Who did he promise would possess it? He promised Abraham would. Abraham, all he wants is a little spot to bury his dead. That's why he needs the land. He needs the land so he can bury Sarah. That's, that's the only reason he's interested. It's his land by promise. Nevertheless, Abraham does not even consider taking this land or claiming it for himself or accepting a gift from these Hittites, the children of Heth. There's a negotiation here, and this is all so much polite talk, and it is polite talk, and there's nothing the matter with polite talk, but there's nothing blessed either about polite talk. 
Here, this is custom. Nothing matter going along with customs. There's nothing the matter with living with the unbeliever in his traditions as long as they don't defile. But there is something the matter with bringing those traditions into the house of God, a thing which Abraham did not do and a thing which we ought not do also. So they're having this conversation where the Hittites offer Abraham the field. And uh, here we just read, Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, even to the children of Heth, and he communed with them, saying, If it be your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me to Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is in the end of his field, for as much money as it is worth, he shall give it me for a possession of a burying place amongst you. And Ephron, the son of Zohar, dwelt among the children of Heth. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the audience of the children of Heth, even all that went in at the gate of his city, saying, Nay, my lord, hear me, the field give I thee, and the cave that is therein I give it thee, in the presence of the sons of my people give I it thee, bury thy dead. And Abraham bowed down himself before the people of the land, and he spoke unto Ephron in the audience of the people of the land, saying, But if thou wilt give it, I pray thee, hear me, I will give thee money for the field, take it of me, and I will bury my dead there. And I want you to notice that this is the same Abraham who wouldn't take anything from the king of Sodom. Now, here we have friendlier people than the king of Sodom, and let's just say less malevolently intended, perhaps, than we have with the king of Sodom. But here are people that Abraham's progeny are going to dispossess, and he knows it. He knows that these Hittites are part of the Ites, which make up the Amorites, and that when their iniquity is full, his progeny are going to come in and have this land. And Abraham will not accept from them this gift. Now, some say, well, was the gift actually intended? I don't think so. I think this is all a manner of speaking. I think that uh, he could have taken them up, and then he would have lost all dignity. But here, Abraham never dreams for a minute of taking a gift. Now, how different is that, by the way, than what we've come to find with God's children today? How far have we fallen in the matter of the of the small testings that arise in the in the matters of money? Here, Abraham will not allow himself uh, to receive such gift as this. Today, Christians begging for gifts, unbelievers, believers alike, it's just not of faith, friends. It's just a shame. Well, here, Abraham is not a shame. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying, My Lord, hearken unto me, the land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and thee? Bury therefore thy dead. Well, here he gives Abraham a price, and this is the way that he gives Abraham a price, and he says 400 shekels of silver. Now, from my study, I've I've heard or I've read that this was a huge price, way more than one would ever expect to pay for a field with a cave in it. That may be true. I suspect it is true, but here's what I can tell you. Abraham, who's a pretty savvy guy and who in transacting business I'm sure would would be a, a good negotiator, here refuses to negotiate anything. 
and uh, immediately gives the man the first prize. Maybe you've heard that the man who names a prize first is the loser. Well, that's because the other fellow will name another prize below him, and they'll negotiate to the middle. But it says in verse 16, Abraham did none of that, which, is, by the way, is a, certainly an Eastern custom to negotiate the, the prize. He did none of that and gave to Ephron exactly what he asked. What a man of faith he is. We'll come back in a minute and take up the rest. So maybe you wonder, what am I saying? Am I saying that the lowest price is not necessarily the Christian price? Well, you judge. Let me tell you, friends, here's something that is true. Sometimes you don't pay the lowest price you can. Sometimes you pay the high price. And Abraham certainly paid the high price because he paid the first price, and it doesn't get any higher than that. And so it says, and the field of Ephron, which was in the Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave, which was therein, and all the trees that were in the field, that were in all the borders round about, were made sure unto Abraham for a possession in the presence of the children of Heth, before all that went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife. Now it tells us in chapter 24, verse 1, Abraham was old and stricken in age, and the Lord blessed Abraham in all things. And let me just remind you that the blessing of the Lord, it makes rich. It adds no sorrow to it. This does not mean that Abraham was the wealthiest man that there ever was. David prays this in the Scripture, and I commend it to you. Lord, don't make me a rich man, paraphrasing. Don't make me a rich man that I would forget you, and don't make me a poor man that I would curse you. Give me that which is convenient for me, that which is suitable for me. You know, it is not the case that whenever we get some increase in wealth, that that's blessing from the Lord. Neither is it the case that whenever we take a loss, that that is somehow the backhand of the Lord or the discipline of the Lord. It can be that which is convenient for us and that which is appropriate to us. I remember a man that I worked with, and uh, he wasn't a Christian man, but he did me a lot of good. And he told me that the second happiest day in his life was the day that he finally bought his boat. He'd always wanted a boat, and uh, he had saved up for it, and he told me the second happiest day was the day he bought his boat. I said, so the happiest day was the day you married your wife? He said, no, the happiest day was the day I sold my boat. Now, I think he might have been serious, actually. He certainly was married, but that little story reveals something, that it's not always a blessing to get what you want or to maximize your finances or anything else. Leave that with God, and God will take care of you. Now, when Abraham was old and stricken in age, the Lord blessed him in all things, and Abraham said to his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred, and take a wife unto my son Isaac. Now here we see Abraham in the occasion. He's old. He's in the vicinity of 140 years old, and he... Uh, now is without his wife, and he thinks about his son Isaac, and his son Isaac is without his mother. 
And so there's a lot of mourning here. We have we have here a lot of mourning going on. We have this great woman of faith who no doubt held the household together. We have this great woman of faith, Sarah, who is a picture really of uh, Israel in advance. She is the mother, you might say, of all of the faithful. Abraham, the father of all the faithful. You remember that Hagar answered to the Old Covenant, and the New Jerusalem answers to the New Covenant. Certainly Sarah, part of the New Jerusalem, or the Heavenly Jerusalem. And though the New Covenant isn't said to answer specifically to her, we do see her as a picture of the woman, along with Mary, who actually was the woman, but a picture of the woman through whom the promise would come. And we find her also to be a great woman of faith, one of those named in Hebrews chapter 11. And there aren't very many women named there, and I think you do well to who is named, and also do well to notice who is not named there. You will find Sarah named there. You will not find Deborah named there. So this protectress, this keeper at home, the keeper of the household is gone. You know, many men die when their wives, immediately when their wives die. Uh, I don't remember the statistic, but typically men don't live very long after their wives die. Women do seem to live long after their husbands die. Maybe that says something about us men. Gee, I hope not, but why do I care? Uh, I seem to be the one who dies, my wife can outlive me. I don't think I'll care about it. And what difference does it make if I do? But here we find this condition of mourning and absence. And it is like God to bring out of ashes life. It is like God to bring out of tears joy. This is what God does. But the next event, after the unusual circumstances that we have referenced in chapter 23, the next prophetic event after the uh, crucifixion, or we could say the typical death of Isaac, is we have a bride for Isaac. That answers to the prophetic calendar that God is on. God has the Lord Jesus Christ crucified. He goes up into heaven. Then there is this unreferenced, unusual time frame that we can only that we don't find in the scripture except by unusual reference, which is the time frame that we are now in, the church which is his body. Not especially typically referenced in the Old Testament, but certainly uh, accounted for, as we see here, certainly accounted for in the timelines of God and in the fabric that he put together. So what am I saying? Well, friend, I'm saying this. The bride for Isaac is not the church, which is his body. That's what I'm saying. God will yet turn to Israel, and Israel will be the bride for our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think if you look through the book of the Revelation, you'll see that God has his bride for the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember that the greatest of the prophets, John the Baptist, said this. He said, when the bridegroom comes, the friend of the bridegroom rejoices, but he must increase and I must decrease. Now, John the Baptist plainly teaching that the Lord Jesus Christ is the bridegroom and that he, John the Baptist, is in the place of the friend of the bridegroom. Well, the bridegroom came, and who did he come to? 
Well, he came to the children of Israel. He came as the one, the king of, he was born the king of Israel, the king of the Jews. He died the king of the Jews. He is the king of the Jews because Israel is the primogenitor nation, is God's firstborn nation. Of course, therefore, he is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. But he came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and they rejected him. But they won't always reject him. There is a day coming when all Israel shall be saved, and then will the bridegroom come back, and the bride will be prepared for him. Now, it is true that in figure we see the Lord Jesus Christ as one body with the church, which is, by the way, his body. And some would say, well, in figure, we have Ephesians chapter 5, where it talks about the husband and wife becoming one flesh. And so you see it's talking about the husband and wife, but it actually says right in Ephesians chapter 5, but I speak concerning Christ and his body. That is to say, Christ and his body are one as husband and wife is one. Elsewhere, there are other relationships likened to, but it has to do really with Christ and the church, which is his body. The church is the fullness of Christ. That's what we teach. And of course, to say that the church is the bride of Christ, let me just say, the first thing you need to do is to go look through your Bible and see if you can find anywhere that phrase that is so commonly used that phrase, Bride of Christ. It is not used in the Bible. I've looked. You can look. You'll not find it. Yet here, the church, which is the body of Christ, is clearly defined as his body. So if you want to know who the church is, well, it's in Christ. And if you want to make him one of the characters here, you have to say the church is part of the groom. And the friend of the bridegroom uh, are the prophets, and the bride of Christ, when he comes back, is Israel. Now, we have a, a wonderful picture here. We have Abraham when he's old, and so we also have the servant of Abraham. And in the typical significance that we left off in the 22nd chapter of Genesis, we saw Abraham took the place of God the Father, Isaac took the place of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we speak typically, we see Abraham as God the Father. Now here comes a third player. And who's this third player? It is the oldest servant. Earlier, we knew him to be Eliezer of Damascus. We think that's who it still is, although he could have been replaced. Not named here because the name's not important. What's important here is he's the oldest servant. So now we have a picture of the father. We have a picture of the son. And we have the picture of the oldest servant. Well, who's the oldest servant? We have here a picture of the Holy Spirit. And this one now is sent out to collect up a wife for the son. And we have a wonderful account here, the details of which we won't go through in any preponderance, but we take up the notion of the typical significance. And so the next time we see Isaac, we see him in the field, and we see him looking upon Rebekah, and he takes her unto his mother's tent, and he has his bride. In fact, if you'll look at it in Genesis chapter 24, we can just read what happens 
uh, after the servant goes and gets Rebecca, and we'll look at the details later. We'll read in verse 62, Genesis 24:62, And Isaac came from the way of the well, Lahai Roy, for he dwelt in the south country. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at eventide. This really has to do with his sadness. It doesn't have to do with meditation as much as uh, really he's in mourning for his lost mother. Isaac went out to meditate in the field at eventide, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. And Rebecca lifted up her eyes, and don't we have a wonderful picture here? As the eyes of Isaac are already upon her, she lifts up her eyes, as Israel will do. They will look upon him whom they have pierced. It tells us in the book of Zechariah, For she had said to the servant, What man is this that walks in the field to meet us? And the servant had said, It is my master. Therefore she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So we see the typical significance going on here, and we've glossed over many important details of the pursuit of the bride for Isaac, of the eldest servant, but I did want to lay out for you at least how I see this in dispensational significance. And then the last piece of significance in this sequence is Genesis chapter 25. And here we read, Then again Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And this is one of the most overlooked women. This is one of the most overlooked. This is perhaps the the most overlooked event in the life of Abraham. But don't you know that God has a plan for the Gentiles in Abraham? This is not a picture of the church. This is a picture of the Gentiles, which God is also in pursuit of. And we don't want to be like those Jews who overlooked God's plan. God elected Israel so that Israel would be his firstborn nation, so that they would preserve the truth. But when he built his house in Israel, which was the temple, and the Lord Jesus came into it, what did he say? My father's house is a house of prayer for, or is supposed to be, a house of prayer for all the nations. God never intended Israel to be a holy huddle. God never intended Israel to be his only nation. God intended Israel to be his firstborn nation so that he could reach the other nations. And God will yet have a marvelous harvest with the Gentiles. And just as there is a Jewish bride for our Lord Jesus Christ, there is a Gentile wife for God our Father. And it's pictured here as Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah, and she bare him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, and Ishbak, and Shua, and Jokshan begat Sheba, and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Ashuram, Latushim, and Leumim, and the sons of Midian, Ephah, and Epher, and Hanak, and Abadah, and Eldah, all these were the children of Keturah. So we have, wonderfully, the way the Word of God is put together some marvelous significance of the future which will yet be fulfilled in Christ.